All right, well, good morning. My name is Doug Fern, the campus pastor here at Parkview East, and I um, just want to welcome you um, to our fall kickoff. Um, it's awesome to be here this morning uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I, I think primarily is, you know, if we think back to about a year ago, exactly a year ago to this day, um, we were standing over at 15 Foster um, Road, Parkview Central Campus now as it's referred to, and there was a group of 50 to 70 of us that stood there, and really the rest of the church laid hands on us and prayed as we um, kind of separated out and came over here just to, to develop our own community of faith. And so it's exciting to be here as we think about one year being in this place, meeting as a people together. And another reason why it's exciting, because if you just look around, you'll see faces that weren't there at 15 Foster Road. There are people um, in this you know part of town that we have reached that have heard the gospel, that are coming here, that are have joined and now are a part of our, our body of believers. And so that's an awesome thing. Really today is a day of celebration and just praising God for the work he has done in us and through us. And so um, absolutely praise him for that. And, and honestly, as we look, it's not just a year of looking back and celebrating, but also of, of dreaming and praying and asking God to continue to move and to do, to do a work. What, what am I asking? Oh, if you guys could shift in a little bit. If there's row, people that are sitting in be, you know, empty seats, if you could scoot towards the center because there's some folks that are coming in looking for seats. So if you're able to move to sort of the middle, open up some seats on the edge, that would be helpful. Very good. Thank you, Shirley. All right. Um, so as, as Doug mentioned, we have food afterwards. Today's going to be a little bit unique. We have a few more songs that we're doing. Um, there's games, food afterwards for the kids. And so because there's no children's ministry, all the kids are, are up in here this morning, I'm going to just go a little bit shorter, a little bit more on the brief side. So I hear some sighs of relief, all right, some hallelujahs, some amen, people cheering. All right, good news, good news. The Lord still works today, all right. So um, some exciting thing that we're going to be doing today also marks the beginning of a new series. As a church, we're going to be walking through the book of Mark. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open um, to the Gospel of Mark. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles that are in the back. You can raise your hand. Somebody would probably pass one out to you if you don't want to get up. But open your Word. Look over your friend's, your neighbor's shoulder and see what kind of Word they're looking for. Look into their Word as well. So if you have your device, you can pull that out. So Mark chapter 1. Um, really this morning, our, our objective is to go through verses 1 through 15. Uh, my intent really is to let this be an introductory uh, message. So I'm not going to walk through every verse and tell you everything that's happening. I'm going to use it because it's the perfect text to launch into just the introduction of the Gospel of Mark. So it's in the New Testament. It's the second book in the New Testament. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. Uh, anybody else need a copy of God's Word? You could raise your hand. Wayne's got some he's going to pass out. Very good. My man over here, Alan, I think needs one as well. Absolutely, very good. So Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read the text in its entirety, and then I'll pray and we'll go through it just a little bit. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's, camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. 
And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we gather here this morning of people, um, the thing that unites us, Father, is your word. The word that we hold in our hands that we read, that we just read from, Lord, and, and your word who is manifest to us as your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray right now um, that, that you would be exalted, that you would be lifted up. Father, and I pray that we would see a glorious, glorious view of who you are and ultimately what you came to do. Lord, I pray also for our brothers and sisters in um, Florida, Lord, as uh, Hurricane Irma is um, just now um, making land. Father, I pray that you would protect them. I pray that you would provide safety and shelter for them, Father, um, and spare lives, Father. I pray that you would be at move right now, Father. We love you, and we ask these, these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Now, one of the last places on earth that you would want to wake up alone is the Australian outback. Well, it became a reality for one man after he claimed that he was left for dead in the infamous desert with no clue of how he got there. On January 24th, 2006, a man by the name of Ricky McGee was cruising down an isolated road in the outback when he believes his car was hijacked by three men, who knows, who then drugged him and dumped him, leaving his body for dead in the middle of the outback. He woke up unaware and confused to dingoes scratching at him in his shallow grave. And so began McGee's 70-day struggle to make it out alive. Eventually, McGee would find a small spring of water and he would uh, stay camped next to the small spring of water and, and feast on frogs, leeches, lizards, cockroaches, Let's just hope our potluck is a little bit better than that this morning, okay? <laughs> and living essentially off of the water of this little spring. Um, on April 6th, some 70 days later, uh, a group of farmers would discover him. And at this time, his skin was, was tanned and he was essentially a walking skeleton left in the desert to die. His journey into the Australian wilderness did not go quite as he had hoped nor as he expected. Now, my question to you this morning, it's a very simple question. Really, it gets to the heart of what this text, what, not just what this passage is all about, but also what the gospel of Mark is all about. It's a very simple question. Have you been to the wilderness? Have you been 
to the wilderness. What I want to propose to you this morning, what I believe this passage ultimately is teaching us, is that it is not possible for you to know true life until you have been to the wilderness. To know the life that Jesus offers us this morning, today, to know true abundant life, it is impossible to know that life until you have been to the wilderness. Now, the Gospel of Mark is written. Um, it's the second book in the New Testament. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of four books that are referred to as the Gospel stories. They are, uh, basically give us the account of Jesus' life and his ministry. And of those Gospels, Mark is the briefest, and it's also the earliest. In fact, some of the other accounts take him, use him, reference Mark in his account as they write their story. The author is written by John Mark. The author of the book is John Mark. Now, John Mark shows himself in several places throughout the New Testament. What we know about John Mark is that he, was, he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But what's interesting about his accompanying them on the journey is that John Mark would eventually leave them. He would abandon them, return home, ultimately as a failure on his first mission trip. Eventually, Mark would be the center of the disagreement that would call, cause Barnabas and Paul to go separate directions. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the journey, and Paul refused. He's already failed us one time. Why would we take him again? So Barnabas and Paul would separate. Barnabas would take Mark and sail to Cyprus while Paul would go throughout Syria strengthening the churches. It's interesting just in examining who the author of this is, it's a great lesson to learn that even in the midst of his failure, God wasn't done with him yet. God still had a job for Mark to do. He would use him in a powerful way ultimately to tell his story. Now, Paul would eventually affirm Mark's ministry and speak highly of him. Peter would, would refer to Mark as his son, which suggests that Peter was responsible ultimately for leading Mark to salvation, to saving knowledge in Jesus. In fact, tradition would tell us that Mark is seen as the interpreter of Peter. That, that Peter was the one who lived with Jesus, his closest disciples who learned from him directly, who, who walked with him intimately. And Mark would be the one who eventually would tell Peter's story of his account, spending life with Jesus. As Mark writes, he wastes no time in telling us exactly what the theme of his book is. In fact, this is characteristic of his writing. Immediately, the word immediately will show itself some 41 times throughout the Gospel of Mark. It is a fast-paced, a quick-moving story of Jesus' life. Immediately, he was drove out into the wilderness. Over and over and over again, from one story to the next. Immediately, immediately, immediately. This is a fantastic book. If you're just exploring the claims of Jesus, this is an awesome book to start with. A lot of people will start in the book of John. I've always thought the book of John to be a wonderful book, but a really difficult one to understand. Mark is a great one. What Mark does ultimately is he holds Jesus up. He shows the readers how awesome Jesus is and how much we need him. Now, in the first verse, we'll just use that primarily this morning. In the first verse, we learn a lot about what Mark is going to do. The first verse simply says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the word gospel, this word in the Greek, euangelion, it simply means good news. 
good news. Gospel, the word gospel means the message of salvation. Mark is writing to the Roman church. It's a church made up of Christians. Some who were Jews came from a Jewish background and many others came from a Gentile or a pagan background and had little knowledge of Jewish history or of the sacred scriptures. But they knew that this word meant the ascent of the king. This word gospel was not simply a word that the New Testament writers created. They didn't just develop this word to communicate a truth. It was a word that regardless of where these people came from, the readers of this book, they would have an understanding of what the word gospel, euangelion, would mean. From the Jewish, those who came from a Jewish background who made up the Roman church, as they read the word gospel, their mind would go instantly back to the Old Testament instantly back to the Old Testament. They would recognize it to mean the best news possible. People, these are our people who were in captivity, in and out of exile. They were being told that rescue is on the way. The ascent of a new king, a king who's coming to take back his throne and to rule over his people, to bring about salvation, to establish peace. They would recognize this word as being the exact word that Isaiah would write in chapter 40, verse 9, where he says, Go on up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, euangelion. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Imagine being a people. Now, God hasn't spoken for 400 years. These are a people in and out of captivity who understand what it means to be in bondage under another foreign king. These are a people who have a history that has not been the easiest one to overcome. These potentially are a people who may have thought that God is not powerful, that God is not mighty, that God has forgotten about them. For years, God had not spoken. So when Mark writes these words... The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Jewish hearers, the Jewish men and women who read these words understood them to mean that God has not given up on them. That the best news possible has happened. The best news possible. Now, the Roman church, like I said, was made up of Jewish believers, but also those who came from a pagan or a Gentile background. And as they were, read the word gospel, they had a, a different but a very similar understanding of the meaning. In fact, if you were to go back in history, you would be able to find inscriptions where this word was used to declare the coming of Caesar Augustus, the pronouncement of a king marching into a community to establish his reign of salvation, justice, and peace. So regardless of where this sort of multi-ethnic group of people were familiar with this word, it meant the same thing. It was a message that offered hope. It was a message that offered hope to the neglected and to the oppressed. It was truly good news. But this was not the news of Caesar coming to town. No, no, no. This is the news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What we learn in the first chapter is just a sample of what Mark will establish throughout his entire book. He will hold up Jesus, the Son of God, the King who has come, and he will show us essentially two very basic things about this King. The first thing he shows us is that this King is absolutely unlike you 
in me. The king that has come to establish his rule and his reign over his people is nothing like you and me. But he also shows us that he is a lot like you and me. So first, how is he unlike you and me? Well, Jesus, his name simply tells us he's not like any one of us. This name, Yeshua or Yehoshua in Hebrew, basically Joshua, in itself means Yahweh is salvation. The Lord saves. Even in his name, he, he clearly is unlike you and me. We do not, as much as I would love to have the power to offer you salvation, I can't for you and I can't for me. Jesus is a different type of person. He alone saves. In his name, he's different. His title, Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title, all right? And it simply means Messiah or anointed one. It is a royal title. What we will see throughout the book of Mark is that Jesus is held up not just as the true God, but also as the king, the king of the universe. He is the all-powerful, mighty king. He shows us as he quotes from Isaiah and Malachi that this king, unlike you and me, was promised to come. Mark begins his story by cementing Jesus in history. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scripture. All of this book points to Jesus, his power in our life and my need for him in my life. Every word in this book is like an arrow pointing to Jesus. He was promised all the way from the beginning. We also learn, verse 7, that he is mighty. John the Baptist, he is mightier than I, he says. The strap of whose sandals I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie. This is what John the Baptist says about Jesus. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. That's how powerful and mighty this man is. Well, Jesus, later on in his ministry, has something to say about John the Baptist. He says in Matthew 11, 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So later in his ministry, Jesus recognizes that of everybody who has walked the planet of the earth, that John the Baptist is an amazing dude. None compares to John the Baptist. And here John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus's shoe. He is the Lord who saves. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one. He is the mighty one. He is absolutely and completely unlike me and unlike you. But what makes this king so special and so unmatched throughout history is how he became like you and me. He is so unlike us, but he chose to become just like us. We, look, we see this in the scriptures simply by looking at where he came from and where he goes to in the text. The Bible says he came from Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus was a man who was born of humble beginnings. He was not accompanied by chariots or soldiers. His entourage was made up of shepherds and carpenters and fishermen. He was surrounded by common, everyday folk. Humble, humble beginnings. Where does Jesus, that's where he comes from. Where does he go to? In the passage, we see twice that Jesus makes his way into the wilderness. 
into, now when you think of the wilderness in Judea around Jerusalem, think more like desert, like dry, arid place. Little vegetation, people were not living there. There was very little happening in the dry desert and wilderness where Jesus was headed. When he makes his way into the wilderness, we see Jesus ultimately do two things. The first thing that Jesus did, now remember, John the Baptist arrives on the scene. He is preparing the way for Jesus. And as he goes into the wilderness where John the Baptist kind of sets up shop, you can hear thousands of people making their way to see John the Baptist. What for? To be baptized. They're heading into the wilderness. And when they get into the wilderness, what do they discover? A man wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and honey, dumping people in water. They're heading into the dry, arid place to experience new life repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. They're heading into the wilderness. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he comes from these humble beginnings. He comes from Nazareth of Galilee, and he heads into the wilderness where thousands of people are going to experience really an awakening, a revival, new life. And as Jesus makes his way in there, the first thing, the reason why he goes into the wilderness is to be baptized, to be baptized by John the Baptist. He was not baptized because he was a repentant sinner. All of those folks that were heading into the wilderness, they were headed there because they had sin in their life. They wanted to repent of their sin and experience new life. That's not why Jesus went to the wilderness. We understand that he had no sin. He was tempted in every way, but he was yet without sin in his life. He didn't go to the wilderness to be baptized for the repentance of his sin. So why did he go to the wilderness? I think maybe for two reasons. One, it was an act of obedience, showing that Jesus was in full agreement with God's overall plan and the role of John's baptism. It was an act of obedience. Jesus submitted himself to the plan of the Father. His entire life could be characterized by that word, submission, submitting his life to the will, to the plan of the Father. It was an act of obedience. But another reason why Jesus went in there, why I believe he went in there to be baptized, is because it was an act of self-identification with the droves of people that were heading there as well. With those who had a heritage and, and to identify himself with the very people he came to save. The, the other reason why Jesus went into the wilderness was we find out in the text, was because he was in the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan. See, we have a king who is able to sympathize with us in every respect he has been tempted, yet he remains without sin. Jesus throws down with Satan in the wilderness. In the same way, just like you and me throw down with Satan every single day of our life. Yet there is a huge difference, a massive difference. He wins. He is victorious. He's the one who accomplishes the victory. We are simply invited to participate in the spoils of the victor. That's our job. We share in the spoils. Ultimately, Jesus goes into the wilderness because that's where the people come to the end of themselves and recognize their need for something greater. Now, Jesus' message is the exact same message that John the Baptist preached. The time is fulfilled. 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's the exact same message that John the Baptist preached. Uh, a message of repentance. What simply is repentance? It's a turning away from your sin and, and running towards a totally different direction. It's a recognition. Repentance is only possible with a recognition of sin's presence in your life. If you don't recognize your need, you will not reach out for help. If you do not recognize your position before a glorious and mighty creator, that, that you are in desperate need because of sin's presence and power in your life, you won't ask for help. Repentance begins with being real about who you are. And it's unfortunate because in our day and age, there's too much of a temptation to cover up who we are. Like if you just look at social media, every attempt is an attempt to be the person we want to be to pretend that we're somebody else and to just put all of the good stuff out there and, and to create really an image of who we want to be. Repentance starts with recognizing you don't have what it takes, that you need help. And it's a rejection of everything else in life that will not satisfy. You know, there's an interesting a disease, an unfortunate condition. It's called uh, adipsia. Okay, it's an interesting word. Maybe you can remember that later. Adipsia. Now, adipsia is simply a condition that's characterized by absence of thirst. By absence of thirst. Even, even in the presence of complete depletion of body water. So even when you don't have water in your system, when your body is craving water, there is a condition that starts in the brain that, that does not send the signals to your mouth that says, drink, you need water. And the unfortunate reality is that there are so many people, in sort of a spiritual analogy, there are so many people that live with the same condition, that don't recognize that we have a desperate, desperate need, that we are wandering in the wilderness. But the good news is that in the midst of that wilderness, there is a, a body of water that flows through the desert. There is a spring that can quench the thirst like no other spring can. It's a living water. And unless you recognize that you are in the wilderness, you'll never drink from the spring. You'll never drink. Repent and believe was Jesus' message. Believe in the gospel, the good news. Salvation is here. Salvation is here. Now Martin Luther makes a really helpful distinction, the great church reformer. He says that it's interesting that in the very first of the 95 theses that he wrote to reform the church, he penned on the door of Wittenberg. The very first in that thesis, the very first of the 95 said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be a life of repentance. So repentance is just what you first do to step into the kingdom. Repentance is what characterizes kingdom life. All of your life as a follower of Jesus is a life marked by repentance. The gospel is for every day and every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. Almost 30 years later, 
February 16, 1546, Luther's last words will be written on a piece of scrap paper. And it echoed the theme of his very first thesis. We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. From the first thesis to the last words, Luther lived at the foot of the cross. Where our rebellious condition meets with the beauty of God's lavish grace and the gospel of his son. A gospel deep enough to cover all the little and massive flaws of a beggar like Luther and a beggar like us. It is not possible to know true life until you have been to the wilderness. It's not possible. Now what I want to do just kind of to close is I'm going to have um, a friend of ours, one of us is going to come up, um, Johnetta Lowe. And Johnetta, you can come on up. I'm going to grab a seat for you. And give it up for Johnetta. Maybe you've seen her around. Your last name's Lowe, right? Is your last name Lowe? Okay. Okay. All right. And perhaps you've seen Johnetta around. Johnetta, um, if you had a chance to get to know her here on a Sunday morning, um, is just a beautiful, beautiful person. And she has a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, she has a great story, as many of you guys do. And so we don't have time this morning to tell all of her story, right? Um, but what's been awesome for me is getting to know her um, and being able to see God's work in her, but also God's work through her. Um, it's been really encouraging to me, um, and, and many of you have gotten a chance. And so, um, Johnetta, you know, you, I want you to just, really we're just talking about Jesus's power in your life and what he has meant to you. And so, um, you know, you have moments throughout your life where you have seen God's hand at work, and he has always told you that you belong to him. Um, but just recently, um, you have kind of had one of those wilderness moments where you've kind of come to the end of yourself and realized that you've, you've needed some help. And so um, I'd just like for you to kind of share a little bit about what that's looked like, okay? Okay. Um, first, I'm a little nervous, but I look out and I see most of the audience and my grandkids and kids, so... <laughs> feel a little better about this thing. Um, so, April 29, 2016, I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and after crying for a couple of hours, I decided that I was going to fight with everything in me. Uh, I was going to fight for all the people in my family that have passed away from cancer and, and everybody else who's been touched by this thing. And, and I was going to beat this thing, but what I didn't know was I had nothing that I could really truly fight with but Jesus. So um, I began to have this excruciating pain after my biopsy, and I couldn't go to work. And the only thing that left me with was, was myself at home because everybody was at work or at school, and I found myself praying a lot and repenting a lot about things that I have done that, that, that I'm not very proud of, about um, choices that I made that I even knew was bad when I made them, but I made them anyway. And, and I began to really talk to God. So while I was at home, I, 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 I knew that I wasn't working and my bills weren't being paid, but I really didn't understand how bad things were until I got a knock on the door and a three-day notice. Uh, I get this notice and I'm behind $2,700 in my rent. Now, 
I haven't worked in three months, but I've been spent three or four months, and I've been through surgery, and I found out that I needed chemo and radiation, so wasn't about to go back to work, and, and I'm thinking, where's this money coming from? My, my kids, they work, they take care of their families. I don't have any rich people in my family, and I, I had just nowhere to draw from, and I started to hear this voice say, well, don't you trust me? And I just prayed, and I said, yes, I knew it was the Holy Spirit, so I said, yes, I trust you. So I get a call immediately after that from my daughter saying, Ma, you got to go over to Parkview. I talked to Mr. Fern, and, and he wants you to go over to Parkview, and he wants you to, to talk to them. So I said, okay, I go to Parkview. I get all my little paperwork together to show them everything that I've been trying to do on my own. And I speak to the young lady. She said, well, the Benevolence Committee, you fill out this application, and the Benevolence Committee will they'll get back to you in about a week. And I'm thinking, but I have a three-day notice. And then I hear the Holy Spirit say, well, don't you trust me? I said, yes. So I start to fill out the application. And I get to this one question that says, how can we pray for you? And I knew right then that my life belonged to Christ. I knew right then that everything that I had, everything that I am, everything that I'm ever going to be is through Christ. And I just, I bawled, but I made it through that application. And I just told them, just pray for my children, pray for my grandkids, and, and just let God know how much I love him and how thankful I am for Jesus. So I turned in the application. She said, okay, well, let's get in touch with you in about a week. I said, okay, I have this three-day notice. And the Holy Spirit says, trust me. This was on a Friday. So that Sunday, I go back to church, and I, and, and I had this peace that I didn't really understand because I, I didn't try to go anywhere or do anything else to get this $2,700. And Sunday, I come home, and I'm sitting at the kitchen table, and I get a phone call from a young lady named Sue, and she said, I'm from the Benevolence Committee, and we got your application. And I'm saying, Lord, really? <laughs> that quick, you know? She said, well, we want to meet with you. We want to meet with you as soon as possible. Can you meet with us Monday? Yeah, I can meet with you Monday. That's my third day. <laughs> so I met with the Benevolence Committee, and I showed them everything that I had and, and uh, everything that I was doing, applying for disability, just everything that was going on in my life. And I was in constant prayer. Now, while I was at home, I was I was also repenting. I was going through a whole lot of things, but I still had this peace after that day. So she said, well, we have to meet with the rest of the members. $2,700 is a lot of money, and we don't know how we're going to do that. So I said, okay. And um, they said, well, have you done anything else to get the money? And I heard that Holy Spirit say, trust me. And I said, no, I haven't done anything else. I haven't been eating well. They said, okay. So I leave the meeting, and I go straight to the real estate office and uh, where the building management, and I'm sitting there, and she's on the phone, and she's not talking to the church. She's, I don't know what she's doing, but she's on the phone. And uh, 
sat there about 20 minutes and she got off the phone and her head is down and she points her finger at me and she said, you're okay. And I looked around, I'm thinking, what do you mean I'm okay? She said, the church called, they'll have a check here by Friday, you're okay. And I just, I just screamed and I said, yes, I trust you. I trust you from ever, from now on, that's, that's it. And ever since that moment, I've been going through excruciating pain every day. Sometimes the pain does not even allow me to get up and my prayer group will come to me. And sometimes the pain does not even allow me to clean up and my kids will come over. And I'm still in financial ruin, but I know that I have Jesus who can conquer anything. Whenever I try to worry and whenever I'm stuck in that chair in pain, I, I only, I just look after I pray and after I, you know, study my Bible and, and, and I'm still, I'm not where he wants me to be, but I can always look up and just say, yes, God, I trust you. And that's my story. Thank you. Very good. Um, thank you, Johnetta. So I'm just going to just kind of close our time in prayer. You know, like I said before, the, the hope is that we all recognize those wilderness moments. Um, and we do exactly what Johnetta does, is that we, we turn to Jesus um, in the midst of those moments. And so I don't know where you are in this room right now. Like, I know physically you're in this room. Uh, but spiritually, I, I don't know where you're at. Um, but, but my prayer is is that for you and, and for myself, that when we're in those moments where all we can do is trust in him, um, that, that we would be able to reach out our hand, that we would fall to our knees and cry out to Jesus. And the great thing about our king is he makes his way to the wilderness to get us. It's an awesome, awesome message of the gospel. And it's the, the message that we're going to be reading about for the next couple of months. So we'll go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you. Um, just for showing us in your word today um, and through your people, Father, that you are a God who moves. You are a God who to this day is alive and seated on the throne. And whatever problem, whatever issue, whatever hurricane, whatever struggle that we face that is present in this room, Lord, you are mighty and you are able to conquer. You are able to, to speak and the winds will cease, Father physically and spiritually in our lives, Father. And so we just pray that, that you would allow, um, that your spirit would move and show us, Lord, areas in our life that we need to repent and turn from, Lord, and that our response would be simply to repent and to believe um, in your gospel and your good news. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.